Steve, happy Monday. How are you, man? Good. Really good. Did some in-depth spring cleaning over the weekend. I actually had to, we were talking before, but I had to send my wife and kids off uh, so I could, my daughter, she's so like, she has this memory of like every toy she's ever played with. And if she sees that toy, like going into a donate pile or going into the trash, it's like a, not a meltdown, but it's like, she starts crying and like, Oh, I love that toy. You know, it's yeah. like, how, how do you even remember playing with this? I know it's been two years, you know? Uh, <laughs> so yeah, sent them off and just spring clean the, the kids stuff and clean out the garage. And it's always a good, uh, it's like a good feeling to get that done. You know? Yeah, it really is, man. I do that too with just even with my own stuff of accumulating like, man, I haven't touched this piece of hunting mm. gear or this specific piece of clothing in two years. Like there's somebody else who could use it, you know? So yeah. oh, I thought I you were going to say you cry a little ago. bit. Well, yeah, yeah I don't know. Depending <laughs> what it is. <laughs> there's certain things that are sentimental. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly get uh, yeah, a lot of, uh, I, need, I could have a whole freaking used store of all the hunting gear that's just sitting there. Steve's estate sale of hunting gear. I'm, yeah. Dude, you would have like a million people show up for that, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, over the weekend, uh, Anthony Alberti, he sent me a picture of like all of his boots lined up across the wall. And, <laughs> and uh, he's like, this is your fault. <laughs> and I was like, ah, typical liberal response. Blame your problems on everybody else. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, speaking of, we've been doing this segment on kind of like what's new. And I know that uh, I just got the new First Light Omen rain gear to check out. And you actually got to test some of that stuff as a prototype last fall when we were in Kodiak. So um, if anyone's following First Light, they've probably seen they've been doing videos and product launch on that gear. Um, but I was just kind of curious since you got to use it in the field and I was there with you and you did, but didn't actually wear it or get experience with it. What's your What were your thoughts on those prototypes? Um, I didn't, yeah, definitely wore it. Um, we had it the whole trip, but because of it was, um, more snow snowing on us, we didn't really wear the rain jacket that much, you know, it was just kind of a soft, dry snow. Um, but that last day Cody and I were out where he shot that buck with a pistol. We wore it all day long. Cause it was, you know, it was like 18 inches of fresh snow and just staying dry. And I, I was really impressed with it. The cut, um, the jacket I had for the prototype was a medium. So it was a little small, but at the same time, it was cut very well to where it wasn't too restrictive of movement. Um, so I was impressed with that. And, and that jacket certainly has some really cool features going on. They've, they put a lot of thought into that. If you watch their, um, uh, they, they did like a product video on the jacket and uh, some, uh, some dude on there just walks through all the features and um, it was impressive for sure. Just, you know, it's, and it's actually fun to watch those videos. Cause you're just like, Oh, I didn't know that's why that was that way or why that mm -hmm. feature is there, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, it's certainly, I put a lot of thought into that jacket and the pants or the pants. I mean, they're just, um, they did add a, uh, kind of a snow gator down there at the ankle, which I thought was really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, just to keep, uh, rain and stuff out of the boots instead of just being a st straight pant down there at the bottom. Um, but yeah, I, as far as, you know, like I've worn that Seek jacket, which I regard as one of the best rain jackets I've worn. Uh, I've worn that in some just nasty weather and and stayed extremely dry and also never, um, you could tell when you're wearing it that it breathes well, right? Um, mm -hmm. That you're just not clammy on the inside. Uh, assuming this new stuff, if they came out with it, is better than the Seek. So if that's the case, uh, it's one hell of a jacket. It's But it's definitely... Um, I would never take a backpacking unless it was like, right. you know, going into just four days of 
downpours. Uh, it's, it's big, heavy, bulky stuff, but they didn't design it for that for backpack and they designed it to be absolutely bomb proof rain gear. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely full featured heavy duty materials. It's a four and a half layer system. Um, so yeah, definitely not backpacking gear. Um, I don't recall that we mentioned this and we'll publish it soon, but we actually, uh, did a, had a great conversation about rain gear and the technology and things like that, uh, with someone with a lot of, a lot of experience now in the hunting industry, but prior to that, um, outside of the hunting industry. So in terms of rain gear, how it works, things to look for, you know, the pros and cons of, uh, different types of rain gear. There's definitely more coming on that on the podcast soon. In fact, perhaps next week or the week after. Next week. Nice. So, that, yeah. that episode was freaking awesome. I can't wait to release that. Yeah. So stay tuned on that. Um, another thing, just kind of what's new worth mentioning is a few, I feel like it was a few weeks ago. Now we mentioned and then linked to a big kind of like article that Onyx had about corner crossing um, and the case that was open against some hunters who were being tried for trespassing and really went beyond that case though, and talked about, um, where that issue plays, um, what the different viewpoints are, et cetera. It was a cool report to read, but anyway, the ruling of that case just came out and those hunters were uh, found to be innocent. They were not charged with trespassing. Uh, it was a pretty quick deliberation in the court by the jury. And uh, again, this case took place in Wyoming. So I'll leave a link to um, a, a news article from Wyoming about that case uh, and how that uh, really was just determined recently. So it's not the end of this issue of corner crossing by any means, but I, it sets a precedent uh, that is good for many hunters. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future, how other states uh, address this and yeah, where this goes. Cause it's again, definitely not over in terms of it being an issue, but a good step, at least in this particular case. Uh, the other new thing we've been talking about all month, uh, now last month in April was you guys leaving us a question for the show via speak pipe and then being entered to win uh, a custom Chris Reeve knife. And so, now that we're in May, I just chose the winter, uh, the winter, I chose the winner for that April giveaway. Uh, and so just did a random number generator. It was number 302. And then SpeakPipe shows us numbered uh, messages. And number 302 is from Chris Meadows. So Chris, congratulations. You won that custom knife and I will send you an email to get your shipping information and get that shipped out to you. But figured we drew him as the winner. We gotta listen to his question and answer it so here's this message from chris i know this will probably come off as a controversial question but why is it that mechanical broad broadheads seem to intermittently get such poor uh penetration thanks for your consideration with this question all right so interesting timing steve just last week we talked about uh how idaho is changing the rules for the upcoming hunting season and is now going to allow mechanicals uh, for the first time. So his question is a bit more technical about the performance of mechanical broadheads and is, uh, in his words, why they intermittently get poor penetration. So I just thought we'd touch on some of the reasons perhaps that you do run into penetration issues with mechanical broadheads. And there's a couple of things that come to mind, but 
Have you shot a lot of mechanicals? Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, I don't know you personally speak to this other than theoretically. Yeah, I, you haven't shot many. I So I haven't in a long time. Okay. Um, I did shoot some initially on whitetail. But, you know, as soon as it was like, well, now I'm hunting out west. Now I want to hunt elk, etc. I changed over to fixed blades for those larger animals and just have never gone back. So going back to simplicity, I don't want, you know a dual setup where it's like, okay, here's my white tail arrow or here's my uh, white tail broadhead. And then here's my elk broadhead, for example. So once I went to fixed blades, um, I've stayed with them for pretty much as long as I can remember. So I have, I've shot some deer with mechanicals, um, nothing, nothing recently by any means. And I think, you know, like most things, there's some good ones out there and some bad ones, but, um, in terms of penetration, I mean, I think there's several factors. One thing that comes to mind from a call it a scientific perspective, if you want, and this isn't based on my testing, but I've seen very reputable uh, sources talk about this and even per- perform some controlled tests. But essentially, mechanical broadheads are going to quote unquote use some of the energy uh, to actually open. And so, this mechanical process of um, the blades deploying is it requires energy. The impact upon the animal is what's starting this process for the blades to open. And there's again, different types, different styles of mechanisms here. So we can only kind of speak the generalities at high level, but there is some energy quote unquote used by that mechanical process of the blades deploying that then is removing, if you want to use that word, some of the energy or momentum from the arrow itself. And so you just end up with less penetration in part because some of the energy or momentum of the impact is going to deploy the blades, not directly into or through the animal at that point. So how much that plays effect, um, again, I haven't personally tested but I think that that theory, if you want to call it that, has been proven that that's definitely one of the factors that can be at play. What else comes to mind for you, Steve, in terms of potential reasons? I mean, that's the, the big one. I think there's a, a lot of mechanicals have very large cutting diameters mm-hmm. um, because you can uh, and that um, you, know, you can because you're not like you can't have a two inch uh, fixed blade broadhead like that's just going to be almost impossible to get to fly very well right um so with a mechanical because the blades are you know folded up and then expand uh, when you hit that you can do that um and on whitetail at 20 yards it's probably all moot point um but when you get you know if you're trying to throw like a two inch cutting diameter through an elk uh that's a lot of meat to cut all right <laughs> and bone and stuff for those blades to get through um so that's certainly i think you know the there's all you know I think I said this the other week, there's a lot of poorly designed broadheads on the market. And a lot of those happen to be mechanicals um, just because of uh, I think their popularity and everywhere else, but the Western, you know, States, as far as uh, what people are shooting for elk and mule deer. Yeah. Um, So yeah, cutting diameters is certainly going to be one that's going to be a hindrance for you. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Anything else is um, just, uh, it's all theorizing to me, right? I think I've, went to Texas and killed some hogs, man, it's been like 12, 13 years ago. And like, those are the only animals I think I've ever killed with mechanical when I had really good performance out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think it was like a, it's like a G five. Oh man. Tekken T E K A N. I think that's what it was called. It's been a while, <laughs> uh, but they, they, they worked great, but they were the, um, kind of like a rage broadhead style where the, the blades were like pushed back and then out instead of folding from the front. Um, yeah. and that to me may always made a lot more sense as far as maximizing, um, or, you know, losing as little as energy as possible for the blades to open up. Yeah. I think another factor is just the mechanical broadheads. And this ties into what you said, Steve, more surface area, wider cut. Yes. That again, inter- that surface area introduces friction. Uh, if you want to use that term that can slow the arrow a bit. Um, but a lot of times those wider cut, those blades aren't, uh, they're not structurally supported in the same way that a fixed blade would be. So they're, they can tend to bend, they can tend to deflect more. Um, and so I think that can lead to some of the penetration issues as well. If you just think of something, an arrow moving with a fixed amount of energy and it going in a, a straight line, it's applying all the energy in one direction. But as soon as you introduce some deflection where that arrow is now kicked or pushed to the side, um, now your energy, instead of moving in a singular single direction is being diverted a bit. So that's going to change penetration. And obviously that can happen with a fixed blade. Um, if you hit large bone and that, um, blade doesn't punch through, it can certainly deflect, but given the design of many mechanicals, I think they're more prone, uh, to deflection in some instances. And so again, that's going to kind of reduce momentum, um, and then also reduce penetration potentially. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, I think some of those technical aspects, Chris, so good question. Um, again, listeners, perhaps you have some experience with mechanicals in particular, if you have some experience on big game, like elk, uh, recently, it would be great to hear about it. So shoot us a message and let us know what your experience has been or any particular broadheads that you would recommend in that regard. Cause as you've heard, Steven, I don't have a ton of experience to share <laughs> yeah. there. That's tough with like, you just can't, you can't make actual informed decisions off of one-off experiences. Exactly. Guys have failures with great fixed blade broadheads, but it's amazing. Um, I mean, you can hit an elk literally perfectly broadside, but just clip the edge of a rib and then it turns the arrow 90 degrees and comes out the front of the chest. Like I've seen that happen before. Um, and so for, you know, some guys like a mechanical, they shot and had a bad experience. You know, there's just, sometimes there's circumstances, no matter what the decision, how good the shot was, what the broadhead was, you're going to get failures, um, or results that, you know, weren't uh, what you were expecting. Um, it's, it's tricky. Yeah. All right. To dive into more listener questions this week. Um, we had so many questions come through, uh, about training and, in a couple different ways, one about training with exopacks in particular, and then others about training just for Western or mountain hunts, um, more about the training itself, not so much how to use the pack for training, but for this week and kind of the exo related question, I did want to cover a couple that came up about pack training. So we'll start with this question here. I was wondering if you guys ever considered building a pack made just for training purposes for like weighted hikes or walks um, instead of, you know, it'd be at a discount to your normal pack. Thank you. All right. So you've, so a training specific pack, um, any thought given to that, why it 
isn't needed. I'll put it that way because I know your answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I just want you to wear the pack and get familiar and get used to it. Um, certainly, uh, if you know, you're just hiking all the time, um, you know, three, four, five days a week, all year round, um, email us and we can sell you a beat up demo pack with a, you know, some weird sewing or something like that. Uh, we certainly do that for some guys here and there when we get them. Um, cause yeah, you don't want to beat the crap out of your pack all the time, but, um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, really, I want you training and using what, you know, hiking the, in the shoes that you're going to hunt with and, and wear the pack that you're going to wear. Uh, so you get familiar and used to it. Yeah, that's certainly relevant. I think what a lot of guys, um, you know, they question the durability of it, which isn't an issue if you take some um, basic precautions on how you load the weight, which we'll talk about in just a second. The other thing I see come up from customers sometimes is they basically don't want to train with their pack with this idea that, well, if I train in it all summer and it gets all sweaty and stinky, I then can't hunt with it. Um, and so for that instance, I would just say, give that pack a good wash if needed. Um, before hunting season, you're clearly going to sweat in it during hunting season. So it, it's going to get sweaty again, but yeah, I get, if you have months of hard training and the pack truly is, um, dirty or sweaty, then just go ahead and give it a good cleaning. Uh, just never be afraid to do that. We've talked about cleaning protocol before, in particular in an instance like this, where it's about sweat, not blood, um, in particular, just give it a good rinse, give it a good long, cold soak. Um, you can add some, uh, mild or scent-free detergent you may wash your hunting clothes with and give it that final rinse and let it air dry. So train in it and train hard and then do that before hunting season if you'd like. But there was uh, a question that came through on how to use an exo pack for uh, training hikes. And we'll dive into that one now. Hey guys, my question is about training with your pack and specifically uh, how you guys load weight. I know a lot of people use a sandbag or something like that. And uh, it usually just feels like I have that weight too low in the pack. Usually, you know, when you're trying to, to pack meat, you, you want to have the, the weight, you know, centered and on your back and as close to your back as possible. But it just feels like when I'm using a bag of sand, it's just riding way too low. Do you guys ever prop up your sand somehow? Or can you just speak to how you load weight, especially uh, when you start increasing the weight uh, to, to, you know, over 60 pounds, something like that? Thanks a lot for everything you do. All right. Perfect. So Steve, you mentioned a sandbag and we'll talk about how to load that in a minute, but I just want to highlight a sandbag is a, a great option for training weight. The things you want to avoid are, um, you know, you see guys just grab like cast iron weight plates, for example. And a lot of times those are going to have, uh, rough edges or burrs on them that, that, that cast iron or metal weight because of those burrs or sharp abrasive edges can wear through fabrics. So we do suggest avoiding those for sure. Um, and using something like a sandbag or just something that's not going to have those sharp edges. If you absolutely positively have to use a weight, um, I would just recommend wrapping it in a towel or a blanket or something like that. And then this speaks more to how to load weight, which again, we'll talk about here in just a second, but you also don't want to take just a weight plate or a dumbbell or a kettlebell or something like that and drop it in the bag. Uh, as that guy mentioned to in his question, 
you want to keep that weight supported and not just number one, loose or number two, sinking at the bottom. Um, so Steve, why don't you address, um, I mean, you're constantly hiking <laughs> with weight, especially as you're <laughs> testing things. So tips on taking something like a sandbag and you can talk about alternatives if you like, but tips on how to load weight in particular for training. Yeah. Um, I, I guess he didn't say if he was using an XO or not. Um, if, you know, depending on the pack that he's using, certainly um, the bag and, and our whole system is designed to keep the weight up high, right? We don't ever, as a general rule, always you don't want the weight going below your butt um, as as much as possible. Keep that center um, right in the middle of your back, um, left and right and vertically, right? Um, and then, yeah, when I put a sandbag in a pack, um, for the most part, I'm going to put it on, you know, take, you can... Uh, I'm not trying to push people to buy something, buy, but buy our crib, uh, take your bag off and just leave your bag in, in your garage or whatever, your hunting room. And then you just use a crib. And that's what I think is beautifully. That's what I use it for. Um, works beautifully is just uh, you f- form that little shelf. You can set exactly the height that that sandbag is going to sit, slap the bag on there, fold the crib up and over, cinch it down and off you go. Uh, and that way your bag is staying home and clean and not getting abuse and things like that. Um, but if, if you're going to put sand inside the bag, then you want to position, you know, have all the straps loose, put the ba- sand in the bag, position it. Um, usually I just, I'll set the bag flush with the top of the frame. And then um, that just happens to be most of the bags I have are like, you know, 18 to 20 inches long. So then it, it leaves about five inches up from the bottom. And then you immediately just go to the, the first thing you do is go to the bottom of the bag. And, and we, the cinch system I designed down there where you slide down the, the triglides first. And I think if you watch, I don't know if I have a sand video, but I certainly did one, uh, how to compress a pack for day hunting use, yeah. um, and walk through how to compress it. Uh, and it's, it's really simple, you know, just slide the two triglides all the way down and then cinch up the ladder locks down there. Um, this would make sense if you're watching the video, so for some imagery and then just go back and tighten up the side straps and then tighten up the front and you're good. I mean, it shouldn't slide or sag down on you at all. Um, uh, I have recently, uh, been using a weighted blanket. My wife bought me a, um, like a weighted, it's like, I don't even know what it's the snuggie. This is all. (laughs) It's just like a 15 pound blanket. Uh, and I don't know what's what they're using inside of it, but it's been great. Uh, cause I just put that inside the pack and then I just have some rubber dumbbells in the garage that I will then like put inside of that weighted blanket. And, um, and it's been allowed, allowed me to so I've been prototyping and working on design stuff. It's just super easy to add 10 pounds, take out five pounds with the dumbbells. Um, and just makes, uh, also makes the math easier. I've just got dumbbells on the back of my truck rolling around constantly. Uh, Cause every time I get to the trailhead, like, all right, today I want to do 65 pounds and I can, uh, I can do that really quickly as a general one. I'm just, you know, training for hunting. Um, it's like, all right, I've got this one sandbag that weighs 60 pounds and this one that weighs 40. And that's been easier to, um, you know, uh, Traditionally, that's what I've always done. So, uh, yeah, I think that answers the question. I think Steve Speck's going to go from an ultralight hunter to then carrying a weighted blanket to sleep better on his <laughs> backcountry hunts. You're going to make like this full radical uh, midlife crisis. I would lane. say that um, kind of along those lines, um, you your body just gets used to what you put it through. And last year when I was, you know, I was doing a bunch of training hikes for getting ready for my sheep hunt, and I knew I was going to have to haul you know, six, seven, eight liters of water up from the bottom, you know, three, 4,000 feet up to the tops. Cause there's no water. 
And so I was just training with this like 55, 60 pound pack all the time. And you just, you know, after a while you do get used to it. Um, you just, you know, your body adjusts and adapts to the demand it's being asked of. And, um, not that, uh, I'm prone to, uh, <laughs> add weight to your pack, but, uh, I was surprised that, um, you just get used to the way that feels. And, uh, it's still, um, obviously requires a lot more energy hauling a 60 pound pack than a 40 pound pack up a mountain. Um, but you certainly, um, kind of adapt to it. Steve, you didn't know what question was coming next, but it was about training for a sheep hunt in particular. So well played, <laughs> sir. Well played. Here's this question. Hi, Mark and Steve. Um, enjoy your show. Uh, my qu- question is about physical conditioning. I live in the Midwest and I'm going to be going on a doll sheep hunt in Alaska. And I don't have any way to simulate uh, the, the elevation or the mountains to speak of. Um, I do some training with the pack on. I use a stair machine, uh, but I'm just concerned as to if I'm going to be ready or not, or is it just as much a mental game as a physical game? Uh, thanks for your answer, and I look forward to hearing from you. All right. That question came through from Rick and I'll touch real quick on some of the general training stuff and maybe being from the Midwest. And then Steve, I want you to weigh in more on sheep specific stuff, which you got ahead of the game. Um, we do have a free training plan that we give away. Um, we didn't design it. It's, uh, from the guys at atomic athletes and they, uh, like this listener are actually from Texas, but do a bunch of backcountry hunting. And so their background, uh, in physical fitness with, you know, extensive experience, as well as knowledge, you know, backed by degrees, they for themselves wanted to put together, Hey, I'm in Texas. I'm in the flatland. What's the best way to prepare for a mountain hunt. And so that's really the context of this training plan that they then, uh, graciously allowed us to give to you guys for free. So look for a link in the show description to that training plan. And that's the short answer to your question is I would start with that, feel free to modify it, feel free to do what you need to do, but it's a great template, um, to start with in particular, and is specific to guys such as uh, myself who comes from the Midwest, as well as this listener and his question coming from the Midwest. Uh, Steve, I did want you to touch on, and again, you did kind of highlight this a little bit, but thinking of like a sheep hunt in particular, compared to a guy who's maybe, yeah, going on a Western hunt, but maybe it's, you know, a rifle elk hunt. Maybe he's not going to do a a ton of crazy elevation or anything like that. I'm curious, what, what would you say to this gentleman and his particular question of it specifically being a sheep hunt of maybe some things to consider? Um, let's start with the, well, the mental side, just, uh, that's the most important, right? Um, (laughs) <laughs> it's gotta be tough. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when we talked to, uh, Dwayne, um, uh, Magnuson, uh, from, uh, Magnuson adventure outfitters, um, uh, who was the, the outfitter for the, my sheep hunt in Alaska two years ago, you know, he, we asked him about, you know, in the field, you know, what's the biggest, is it people not being physically ready or, um, what are, you know, what's the, thing when people come up there and, and he said, number one, it's just mental attitude. It's like, there's plenty of guys who are very physically capable, but they just quit. They give up, um, five days into the hunt, six days into the hunt. It hasn't happened. Um, mentally they just shut down and they, uh, shoot a caribou and cause they can tag it with their sheep tag and, um, and walk out of there and, you know, 
claim defeat um, or they just give up entirely and say, no, I can't do anymore. I want, you know, I'm done. Let's get out of here. Uh, I don't, you know, we've talked a lot about mental training and stuff like that. And the only way I know to do it is just put yourself willingly in uncomfortable situations. And um, you know, I, the death hike that we do every single year, uh, you just got to do stuff like that to get your mental side tough. Um, that's obviously a very physical thing, the death hike, but at the same time, whether you succeed or not, it's going to come down to between your ears. Um, so just do challenges, do, you know, it's sounds stupid, but every single day, take your, when you get, you know, you're done with your hot shower, flip that thing all the way to cold and sit in there for 60 seconds. Um, that takes mental toughness, right? Like it's, it's not fun. It's not comfortable to do that. Um, but just challenge yourself in little ways every single day to do the things that are uncomfortable uh, and all that just over time builds up to creating mental toughness. And, you know, that's something, you know, I'm, I by no means have command of it's uh, constantly a work in progress. So um, on the physical side, just get in the best shape you can. Um, if he's a flatlander, doesn't have access to Hills uh, you know, obviously the training program there is huge. The um, don't, whenever you, if you can, go for a hike and say it's just flat find the roughest flat terrain you can like whether that's um really just rocky old dry creek bed um that's going to be way more beneficial to go hike two miles of that than it would be to four or five miles just on a road on concrete Mm -hmm. um just get your feet used to sliding left and right forward and back in your boots Uh, i think i mentioned this camera where i was um but I ended up hiking uh, like a canal bank and it was really great. Um, cause it was basically like the equivalent of side hill. And, you know, uh, I hiked it for like a mile one way and a mile back and you get both sides of the feet sliding, um, both directions there and then back. And, uh, it was a great, like, man, this is, if I don't have access to the mountains, this is a great way to just kind of get the feet tough. And also you're just working, you know, you're working different muscles than you are when you're walking on flat ground. It just activates so much more. So just think of the get yourself in as many awkward positions as possible. Uh, you know, get a step up, um, step in your garage and, and do step ups and don't just do forward and back, you know, do left and right, do angles. Um, just be really diverse in how you're training to get as many muscles activated as possible. Cause if you're just hiking straight up, straight down, um, you know, there's so many times in the mountains that's, that's rarely the case. We're always side hilling, um, sliding, slipping. Um, so just, Think of diversity, I guess is the best way I could put it. Yeah, and I would say that um, you probably can't find a hill, right? And even if it's only one good hill, do repeats on it. And this kind of goes back to mental toughness because it's boring and stupid. Uh, But I even did this last week. There's a good hill close to my house that, you know, it's not much if you climb it once. But if I get out there and do some repeats on it, all of a sudden I've done 1,200 feet in elevation gain just by doing this one hill back and forth a little bit. So um, do what you can with what you have, where you are for sure. In particular, you know, besides the training plan, besides hiking with weight and all the rough terrain, your rough footing, you just mentioned Steve, hundred percent agree. I would just say that for me in the last handful of years, I've realized that uh, this is both, I think from a performance perspective, yes, but just more of a longevity perspective Um, I've just been trying to make sure that I do some single leg or unilateral movements because I feel like there's a lot of injuries that happen is because we get outside of 
you know, the, a standard movement pattern, right? So it's one thing to walk or hike or even to be in the gym, but just do these very single direction, full body movements, like a squat, for example, um, they're great for you, but mix in some single leg stuff. So things like lunges forward and reverse to the side, things like split squats, um, single leg deadlifts, single leg glute bridges. And if you don't know what any of that is, just Google that stuff like single leg lunges, single leg split squats, single leg deadlifts, single leg glute bridges. And those are just an example of a few. So you can look up more, you know, single leg or unilateral movements, but I think that stuff's really, really important because when you're moving in the mountains and the ground's not flat and you slip or you have to make a movement that's outside of your call it normal pattern. A lot of this strength and mobility and agility you've built by the single leg stuff, um, which feels very awkward at first when you do it is going to be really beneficial. Um, and then in addition to just, you know, your cardio, your legs and your lungs, like I've been trying to make sure I focus on hip flexors. Um, and then also some of my core, my, you know, call it your chassis. But if you think about moving in mountainous terrain with a loaded pack, yes, there's a demand on your legs and your lungs, but really your midsection is stabilizing a lot of that again, especially when it comes to side hilling, slipping, climbing over stuff, et cetera. And so you really want to focus on the strength of that midsection. And in particular, I've, I've found at least for myself that my hip flexors have been both weak as well as had bad mobility. Um, and I've noticed a difference as I've strengthened those that it's just made me, uh, I feel like more durable and healthier overall. So again, there's so much information about that, um, in terms of looking up what is good strengthening or mobility exercises for your hip flexors, but, um, go do that and then follow some suggestions there. You can pair all that into one thing. So like an example of a movement, I would say that's going to be a single leg movement, work on your hip flexors and your chassis and core would be to take something like a dumbbell or kettlebell in one hand and then hold that overhead. So you have one arm extended, um, and then do single leg lunges like forward and reverse, for example. So you have this single weight that's like offset. It's not centered. You're holding it on one side with your upper body. And then with your lower body, you can use the opposite side or the same side, but do a single leg movement. And then that, that movement with that weight that's offset, um, is going to force yourself to engage that midsection and that stability. So that's one example. All right. Again, that training plan is also up there. So check out the link in the show description. Shifting topic, Steve, something timely and relevant. This question came through about managing ticks in the spring. What's your secret to surviving ticks on spring bear hunts? I'm really interested to know, and I'm really awaiting your answer. Steve, do you have a secret? No. Like, don't go <laughs> Dang out. It. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> I legit would hunt I know that you hunt. hate him. I would spring bear hunt way more if it wasn't for the ticks, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I hate them. Uh, I've not found it. I mean, people say permethrin. Uh, I literally have not seen any notable difference in it. Um, I think somebody says it works, but whenever I've treated my pants or not, I don't, I've never seen a difference. Um, certainly 
I think that the trick is um, wearing like light colored pants and just staring down at your legs the entire time um, and just flicking them off as they get on there. Uh, there's just, I, I haven't found anything that works. Like when you're in tick country and they're everywhere, they're just going to be on you. Um, maybe permethrin reduces it from 50 ticks to 40 ticks, but I certainly haven't seen where it's like, um, you know, a hundred, you know, hundred percent effective by any means. So, yeah. um, yeah, there's, you know, put wear gaiters so they crawl up your legs, wear light colored pants. So you can see them, uh, wear light colored shirt. Um, so you can see them tuck in your shirt. Um, it's just more about, I, I don't know how to keep them off me. I just know like when they're on you, um, have a buddy checking you constantly um just got to be aware of them i yeah permethrin to me i feel like i've seen it work and then i've also just been like i think in areas where there's been so many ticks it didn't almost matter yeah um like i can think of a time where i was turkey hunting for example and i saw a tick on my boot and i had permethrin on my pants and i literally watched it transition from my boot to my pants and then like immediately essentially turn around like oh i'm out of here i don't like is that permethrin working because i had my pants sprayed and then it you know since that or came in contact with that or whatever i don't know right uh, but there's definitely been times where i've had my clothes treated with permethrin uh and still gotten plenty of ticks so i i do it how how effective it is i guess uh is going to depend but i think like you said it's funny you overlook simple stuff like Number one, being aware and keeping a look. I mean, I can think of even our death hike last year. You began to notice like the trail would walk by a certain bush or something. And it's like, if you pay attention after brushing up against brush or bushes or things like that, checking in particular in those instances, but um, it's literally been another driver of in particular in spring hunts where it's like, I don't want camouflage because as you said, like wearing a solid lighter color layer makes it so much easier to see them, which is beneficial. Absolutely. Um, the one I think I've had better luck with just carrying like off like deet spray mm-hmm. um, and just like literally every hour, just, you know, hosing down your pant legs with it. Uh, I think I've seen more of a difference from that than I have where I treated it with permethrin at home and then went out in the field. So yeah, other things you mentioned, Steve, tuck in your shirts, uh, gators can obviously be helpful. Um, in particular, make sure if you're backpacking to inspect all of your stuff before getting in your shelter, um, as best <sighs> as possible. Cause yeah, that's never a good feeling. Been there, done that. Um, I'm pretty particular about trying to, yeah, not enter my shelter with ticks on me or on my gear. Um, and then as you said, like may feel weird, but you got to have your buddy check things out. Like pull off your shirt, do what you have to do. Uh, take one for the team and get out there <laughs> and have your buddy check out your body. Cause, uh, yeah, those suckers are, they can get in places for sure. So, uh, and then hopefully you already have like some tweezers or something in your first aid kit. You probably should, you can have some super light ones. So if they start to get embedded, uh, it's helpful to be able to pull them out. With yeah. That. I do know, say if one's embedded, save it, uh, throw it in a plastic bag. Cause if you are going to get uh, Lyme disease or Rocky mountain fever or something like that. Um, if you have the tick saved, uh, then that they can test that tick and identify whatever it is you got going on a lot quicker. Right. Mm. Um, so every time one digs in, I yank it out and find something, you know, it, it's like, I never pre-plan for it. I don't bring a Ziploc bag for it, but I, I always find something to wrap it in and, and save it in that way. Um, uh, if, you know, and then just keep it for a week or something. And if you have some crazy weird fever show up like we had uh 
Nick Lemongood get, um, what was it? It was called Colorado tick fever on one of our death hikes. And it was like a week later, he was running this 105 degree fever and had to go to the hospital. And, um, so, uh, I don't think he saved the tick and it took him, I think it took him some time to figure out exactly, um, what it was that was causing his symptoms. Yeah. Um, let's wrap up with this one. Another timely spring bear question. Hi guys. Thanks for putting out a great podcast every week. I look forward to it every week. I've got a question about an upcoming spring bear hunt that I'm going on. So I've gone bear hunting twice now. Haven't seen a bear at all. Um, and I am wondering what is a tip for finding bears, I guess, for physically spotting them. Uh, I understand that they like to kind of trans, they kind of like living in the more brushy areas and kind of roaming on the, on the borders between grassy areas and, and the thick timber. So what's a tip that you guys have for spotting those bears while glassing? Thanks. All right. So Steve, I didn't so much want to talk about like where to look for bears, for example. Um, actually did a, a podcast here recently with Douglas Bowes that you guys can go back to. Um, and that's a recent episode full of advice on like tip to, tips and tactics for spring bear. Um, but what comes to mind for you in terms of that specific question of like advice for spotting bears, glassing for bears and specific strategies to maybe, yeah, just locate bears again, not where to look, but kind of how to look, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, certainly. Well, the bears are going to be where there's feed, right? They're, they're, you know, it's April, they're coming out of their dens. They're trying to fatten up. So early in the season, you know, South facing grassy slopes, things that are getting the sun, the, the snow melts sooner. Right. Um, and so it's, yeah, kind of answering the, both questions here. Like I'm looking for little patches of green um, and that are usually next to cover that the bears can bounce back and forth between. Um, get in a spot that you can see as much country as possible. And your best luck is just keep your butt planted there on the ground and glass and glass and glass and glass and glass uh, till your eyes bleed. And eventually you'll spot a bear because <laughs> they do, they travel, they move. They're very, um, you know, you just stare at a hillside for an hour and then look away and then look back and there's a bear right in the middle of your binoculars. You're like, where the hell did he come from? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had that happen a lot. Uh, so just, you can't give up. You just got to be persistent. I'd certainly um, choose my camping spot. So it's uh, wherever I'm pitching my tent is like where I'm glassing from, or at least as close by as possible. You're just trying to maximize your time behind the glass. Um you know, travel open ridges when you are traveling, uh, you know, just think about, uh, instead of like side hilling through it where you can't really see a whole lot, you know, climb all the way to the top of the ridge. And that way you can see off both sides. You're just, you're just trying to see as much country as possible. Um, and then, and then as it bear hunting to me, spring bear hunting gets a lot trickier, the later you get, because once everything's green and lush, um, the North slopes, East, West, South, Every, the foliage is starting to bloom on all the bushes. Then it, then it gets a lot, lot harder. There's certainly a sweet spot there, depending on the year of when, you know, the snowpack, what the snowpack is and how fast things are melting off that sometime in, uh, you know, early to, to late May, I guess pretty much is, um, 
going to be like a sweet spot where like, you know, there's North slopes are still all snowy. The bears aren't going to be there and they're uh, hanging out on the South slopes and just a lot easier to, you know, spot and find. So, yeah. Yeah. I think you kind of mentioned like those transition or thicker areas too. And, you know, this is simple, but just keep in mind is sometimes you're not looking for a bear. You're looking for signs of bear. Uh, what I mean by that mm-hmm. is like, if they're in a thicker spot, but like, just be aware of maybe you catch like a bit of brush or foliage moving. Um, and maybe you like instantly like, Oh, that was the wind or whatever, but no, like focus on that for a minute. Maybe there's a bear that's obscured, uh, by brush or foliage or something like that, but it's moving. It's kind of rooting around in there. And that movement is really the sign of you then finding a bear. Um, and even if you don't, maybe see the bear initially there. Um, just make sure as you continue to glass a hillside, for example, you kind of come back to that spot. Cause as you said, Steve, that bear may pop out. So maybe you didn't see him, maybe some movement um, tipped you off. You don't see the bear, but you kind of come back and focus on the area again. And then now that bear is visible. Yeah. Um, so little things like that can be helpful when you are hunting those thicker areas. I did just look to that podcast with Douglas Bowes recently. It was episode 334. So we'll leave a link to that, but it was a pretty wide ranging discussion on different bear hunting tactics. A lot of which came from listener questions and some, uh, some questions we threw out there from the Instagram audience. So it's definitely, if you guys are headed out bear hunting um, this year at all, it's a podcast that I would listen to as well. And I'm sure that you'll pull something from it. All right. Well, that is a wrap on today's show. Uh, Guys, once again, thank you so much for the questions you have been submitting. And if you have a question for us or a topic suggestion, look for the link in the show description and share that with us. We'd certainly appreciate it. You can also email us, uh, which is podcast at exomountgear.com. And then you can find all previous episodes of the podcast by going to exomountgear.com forward slash podcast. And there you can not only scroll through all episodes, but you can search or look at the different categories or tags um, of say bear hunting, for example, and see all episodes filtered on those specific subjects. So check that out. And also if you haven't yet hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically, we'll talk to you soon.